0: Good morning. My name is Bill. uh, I serve on staff with fellowship. I spend most of my time over at the Irish campus, so I'm thankful to finally be able to be over here uh, hanging out with you all this weekend um, on this Father's Day. So, fathers, we're thankful for you, whether you're a biological father, an adoptive father, or a spiritual father. Your influence is critical, and we're thankful for you. And uh, make sure you stop by the, I don't know what they call it, the dad room. Daddy den. Thank you. Stop by there um, sometime today. Uh, we're thankful for you. We just want to bless you a little bit today with that. Make sure to take a picture later, too. Jeremy will explain more about that. Um, but today we're we're keeping going with the the series through First Peter, uh, talking about Christian one hundred and one and kind of the essentials for the Christian life. And uh, we're picking up after Jonathan last week talked about being an everyday people, and uh, being an everyday people means reflecting the character of God. Day in and day out, and a lot of times that'll put you on the outside of what's normal in our society, and that's okay. Uh, it's, it's a good thing. So uh, we're picking up this week, and we're talking about what does everyday care look like in the church. As the body of Christ, what does it look like to care for one another? Uh, and the definition of care, we're going to throw this up here. This is the Merriam-Webster Webster definition of care, and it says this, Feel concern or interest to attach importance to something to look after and provide for the needs of. You know, with caring, it can get messy sometimes, though, right? Like, we try to do this stuff, but it's not just kind of this clear-cut thing. Uh, When we care, either our motives are messed up. We have kind of mixed things going on with us trying to do good things for people. Uh, The people we're trying to care for are difficult or challenging or not really thankful for it. Um, Or the context in which we're doing it, just we don't understand all the ins and outs of it, and it makes it complicated, right? So caring can get messy. And uh, one of the clearest pictures I have of this, a story I was trying to think through, like, okay, Where have I seen this in my life, kind of in a really clear way? Uh, When I was in high school, we used to do these camps uh, with my youth group called Tampa Top, which was a spinoff of a camp called Mountaintop in Kentucky, and it's a teen outreach project. And what we would do for a week is they would interview these people, and uh, then we'd spend a week serving uh, the elderly or the disabled, people who couldn't take care of their homes or yards, whatever. So we would do yard work, we'd do minor demolition and construction, we'd build like wheelchair ramps, things like that, or we'd paint, things like that. So most of the stuff outside the house, and um, spend a week doing that, and... We'd also kind of take time within our team, kind of rotating over and spending time caring for the people we were serving on a personal level, not just doing stuff for them, but getting to know them, praying for them, uh, just kind of hearing their stories and just being a listening ear, right? Uh, So one year, we had Mrs. Blackburn. Uh, My team went over to Mrs. Blackburn's house, and we affectionately referred to the yard next to her house as the jungle, (laughs) okay? Uh, And you can kind of picture what that would look like, right? Uh, Now, you may not be familiar with Florida vegetation, but it was all about that high, right? And so we had to go in there and clear out this whole, this whole yard. So cutting grass, I mean, you couldn't use a lawnmower, so we had to use lots of other things to try and do that. So um, yeah, so we spent a week doing that and kind of uncovering whatever was beneath the grass, right, and everything else that was overgrown in this yard. And so Mrs. Blackburn was a widow, and she was a super sweet lady. I ended up with a cat named Billy, uh, named after me, um, that uh, Lived for a few years in Tampa. Um, And uh, just a super sweet lady. As we went through the week, we discovered that uh, her husband had actually died in that yard, in the shed, in the backyard, in a fire. And uh, he used to be a dentist. And so as we were kind of, the way we discovered this is we started finding these kind of old, retired pieces of dental equipment that had been in the shed. This stuff that he wasn't able to use anymore in his dentistry. He just brought home and had them in this shed in the back that had burned to the ground. And so we're kind of uncovering all this stuff as we're clearing out the yard and the grass and whatnot, and we bring it to her, and that's when we heard the story, and man, kind of changed the tone for the whole week, right? Um, And just made our caring for her so much more significant in our mind, like, we really wanted to care for her well and love on her well. Um, But that kind of brings us to the story here. Uh, We kind of got to the middle of this yard, and we found these concrete pillars or pedestals, and... uh, You can picture a bunch of high school guys who are athletes, some sledgehammers, and some girls to impress, right? And what happens to the concrete pillars? Um, And so we started smashing these things up. I mean, they're too heavy to carry out by ourselves. And so we had to break them up and take them out in pieces. And as we're doing this, Mrs. Blackburn saw one of the pieces being carried out, and she started crying. And we're like, uh, what did we miss? (laughs) This just looked like junk that was in the middle of the yard, kind of buried in grass. It's probably been there for two decades, you know? And uh, I guess somehow those pillars were a reminder of her husband. And we didn't ask. We just kind of thought we were doing the right thing and just went and did it. We didn't bother to care for what she thought about those things. We thought they were junk. And so we just took care of it like we thought we would. So that brings us to one of the key points that I've learned about caring and helping. Helping isn't help if it's unwanted. If, if we're just doing what we think someone needs, that can do more harm than good most of the time, right? Right? So that's something we have to keep in mind with caring, with helping. It's, it's messy. It's not always as easy as it looks. And Peter kind of gives us the why and the how of caring. And they're deeply linked in the gospel and in the church. They go together. If one's messed up, the other will be, right? And so uh, we're going to start just diving right in. First Peter chapter 1, verses 22 through 318. We've got a lot of ground to cover today. Uh, You can blame Jonathan for that. So, uh, it's his birthday today, too, by the way, so make sure to find him somehow. He's over at Yerish preaching uh, about racial reconciliation, which is awesome. And uh, just pray for him, and also wish him a happy birthday if you find him online or something like that. Uh, We're on page 738 in your blue Bible, uh, if you have those in front of you. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, please keep that. We want you to have it. Uh, We want you to wear it out. All right, let's start in 1 Peter 1. Twenty-three. This is where we're going to pick up. For you have been born again, not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living Word of God. God has caused us to be born again through Jesus. That is the heart of all of this. We can't care well if we don't get this point. Okay, this is the beginning of it all. Peter keeps going. Uh, he talks about it in two twenty-one, and he shows us. His, the example that we have in Jesus. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in his steps. He never sinned, nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross, so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds you are healed. Once you were like sheep who wandered away, but now you have turned to your shepherd, the guardian of your souls. And then he kind of finishes the whole passage off here in 3.18. He says, Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the Spirit. Okay, so we read that Jesus bore our sins at the cross but what does that mean for us? Like, we know that. I knew that for a long time, just kind of being around church before I actually ever believed in Jesus and put my trust in my faith in him. Yeah, Jesus died on the cross, right? Okay, he died for our sins, sure. But what does that mean? What does that mean for us? What does that change for us? How does life change because of this good news, because of the gospel? Well, Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life. He fulfilled the law completely. And then he died on the cross in our place for our sin, and he rose to new life from the grave on the third day, right? We know that story. But when we look to Romans 3.21, we kind of get a better picture of what, what that means for us. Okay, so we're going to turn there. Uh, you, I'll have it on the screen. You don't have to turn your Bibles if, if you don't want to, but this is what it says. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We were made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ, and this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone is sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God freely and graciously declares that we are righteous, and he did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. And this sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. And God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just. And he declares sinners to be right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Jesus took our place. He is our substitute. And when we place our faith in him, this is telling us that we are in Christ and he stands in our place. He is the one who represents us to God. We sung about that before the throne of God above. Right? I have a strong and perfect plea. Jesus is representing us to God the Father. And so when we are in Christ, we have his perfect righteous life standing in our place. We have his perfect death bearing our sins for us so we don't have to die for them. And we have his righteous life from the grave that we get to participate in as well. We get to share in life with Christ. We are incorporated into him so we get what he is before God the Father. When God sees us, he sees us through Christ. We are dressed in the righteousness of Christ. So Martin Luther has this quote, that's one of my favorites. It says, Christ is full of life, grace, and salvation. The soul is full of sins, death, and condemnation. Now let faith come between them, and sins, death, and condemnation will become Christ's, and life, grace, and salvation will become the soul's. Emil Brunner, uh, another German theologian, said this. Justification, that's what that word means, declared righteous. We are declared righteous. It means this miracle. Christ takes our place, and we take his. I want you to hear how crazy that sounds, right? As, as, Paul talks about in Romans 3, like, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the standard. We've all not done what is right. We all know that. But when God sees us in Christ, he sees us as righteous, perfectly righteous, as having fulfilled the law completely, completely. That's why we care, because he cared for us and laid down his life to make this happen for us. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, it talks about how we have been made alive together with Jesus, right? God being rich in mercy. I'm going to turn over there because I'm going to mess it up. But God is so rich in mercy, he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. We are raised to life together with him. We have new life. We are born again. Peter calls it this seed that has been planted in us, like Jonathan talked about last week. It's the seed that's in us, and it grows from inside out. It's not some outside morality that we build up for other people to see, but it's this new life, a new character within us that's growing and growing. And one day, we will look like Jesus in reality, not just in our status before God the Father, but in full reality. We will have the character of Christ. And that will be an awesome day when we see him face-to-face, won't it? So what are some of the results of this new life? Okay, We, we have this new life, and it's got some, some outcomes. And Peter talks about it in 1 Peter 1.22. God has made us brothers and sisters in Christ. You were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth. And that's, that's a statement for obeying the gospel, putting your faith in the gospel. Uh, so now you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply with all your heart. He also talks about this in 3.8. In we share in this life together as the family of God. We're adopted children of God. We were outside the family of God and he brought us in and adopted us as sons and daughters alongside Jesus. So we get to share in the inheritance together with Christ. And this is what it says in Romans 8 uh, verses 15 to 17. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. And now we call him Abba, Father. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And so, since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. We share in his life and his character. And like I said, one day we will look just like Jesus we will share his character in full. And he is working that in us and shaping us and molding us. He's also made us the body of Christ. And he spends a lot of time on this. And we're going to kind of look at a couple different verses here. First Peter 2, 5. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. And he also goes in 910 and says, but you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. And as a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful life. You know, for a long time, I kind of had this idea of like a bunch of little temples running around, like you've, you know, you've heard your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but the the Greek is y'all are a temple. It's not a bunch of little temples running around, but we are one temple. Together, as Christians, we make up one temple, one dwelling place for God here on this earth. Now, if you think through like the history of God's people, right? it was the temple to begin with, right? And God was dwelling in the midst of his people in this temple, in the center of where they lived. And he was in the temple to protect the people from his wrath and from his holiness because it would lash out against sin and destroy all of them. They couldn't stand to be in his presence. They were afraid, right? So he made the temple so he could dwell in their midst. And then Jesus came, and he was God with us, and he walked among us and lived the life that we live so he could sympathize with all of our weaknesses, all of our temptations. He would know it. And now after his resurrection and ascension, we have the Spirit dwelling in us, God in us. God has moved nearer and nearer and nearer to his people. And together, we are his body number two, right? Jesus in the flesh was body number one on this earth, God's presence on this earth. And now we as a church are body number two. I've heard it called, right? We are his presence here and now. There's a reason he didn't just take us out of here and say, all right, we're done. See you later, earth, right? No, he left us here to be his presence his transforming presence to expand the kingdom of God here on this earth so others might know his goodness and his mercy, right? To show others the goodness of God. There's a purpose for us being here. We are the temple, and we are priests, it also says, right? We're those who represent and worship God. We represent God to the people, and we represent the people to God. We pray on behalf of those who don't know the Lord yet. We pray for one another as the church. We represent each other to the Father, not as intermediaries. We don't go between them, but we just stand in the gap for them, right? We don't need anybody to go for us to God, right? Jesus, it says, is the one who mediates our sacrifices. When we worship in this place, when we sing together, when we pray together, when we live our lives trying to honor God with our lives, it's not made acceptable because we're good at it to God or because we've lived pure lives. That's not why. It's acceptable to God because Jesus is the one who mediates it for us and makes it acceptable. It's acceptable because of what Jesus has done, not because of anything you and I have done for ourselves. Jesus is our mediator. And we are a people when we weren't a people. We were all from different walks of life, different backgrounds, different family environments, and God has made us one people through Jesus. We are together. We're in this together. And we share this life together. And we are the temple together. We need one another. Okay, so that's the why. Okay, that's why we care, because God has done all this stuff for us and given us a purpose here and now, right? So now we're going to talk about what caring looks like. And if the motive for our caring is impure, the mode of our caring will be too. And that means if the why is messed up, so will the how, right? If we're caring for the wrong reasons, if we're caring for our own interests, it's going to mess up what we're trying to do, right? It's going to get messier. So let's look at what Peter talks about. First of all, he talks about how it is selfless, right? And, and these, these three things we're going to talk about, this is every context of life. Peter doesn't leave anything out, right? We, we like to say, okay, I'm going to care in this situation with these people because I like them and it's easy, right? So I'm just going to, I'm going to do my thing over there, but just forget about that. I'm not even going to bother, right? Peter's saying in every context, in society, with government, with our work, with our husbands, with our wives, with our church. It's all in there, right? Our families. It's all included. We got to care this way in every environment because we represent God. We are His presence here on this earth and we need to reflect His character and the care that He showed for us even when we were enemies, even when we didn't care what He did, He did it for us, right? So this is what he talks about. In one twenty two. he says, You were cleansed from your sins when you obey the truth, so now you must show sincere love to each other and brothers, as brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply with all your heart. And then in one, So get rid of all evil behavior. Be done with all deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and all unkind speech. In verse 16, For you are free, yet you are God's slaves, so don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. And then in 3.15, he says something similar here. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. Our lives as Christians ought to stand out, ought to make people wonder, right? It ought to be so selfless that people are like, why, why are you doing this? How can you live life this way? In our world, that's so self-centric, right? Uh, this has got to be something different. And this is the this is the goal of the love that God has shown us: is for us to be this kind of people for our world. Uh, in Philippians chapter two, verses three through eight, uh, it says this. If I can get it over there. All right, here we go. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but also take an interest in others, too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not, count or did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being when he appeared in human form. He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. You know, I think this is one of the main things that separates Christianity from every other religion in our world. Because at the very heart of every other religion, there's this underlying self thing going on. Like, even if I'm trying to be selfless, it's so I can improve my status before the divine being or entity or whatever it is they believe, right? To get more in the end for myself. That's ultimately the the motivation that's behind all of that. I'm trying to improve my standing. But in Christianity, it's done. Our standing is secured by the finished work of Jesus, and we got nothing to prove. We don't have to get mine, because Jesus did. He got it for me. And so when God sees me, he sees me through Christ, perfectly righteous. I have nothing more to gain in his sight. I'll be given the crown of righteousness just because I loved his appearing, uh, Paul says in Romans 8, right? And nothing more. I don't have anything to gain in God's sight. The only debt I owe is love. And I love because he loved me first, right? What First John says. We love not because we loved him first, but because he loved us first and gave himself up for us. That's why we love. We have nothing to gain in God's sight. It's been done for us. So we can truly be selfless. We are free to forget about ourselves. We're free. We don't have to keep coming back and saying, oh, what, what about me? What about me? What about me? I don't have to worry about that. Jesus worried all about me and took care of it for me. It's done and secured because of him. We also have to be blameless in the way that we care. 1 Peter 2.11 Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. It is God's will in verse 15 that your honorable lives should silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. And then verse 21, again, we come back to Jesus' example. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in his steps. Our lives and our caring must be above reproach, so that no one can look at us and say, uh, they're doing something else there. It should be such that when they see us, they have no question that it was blameless. And, that, and their accusations will fall silent, because they have nothing that they can say that will stick against us. Just like when they made accusations against Jesus, it didn't stick. Because it wasn't true. And everyone who spent time with him knew that. Pontius Pilate said that. I find no fault in him. The centurion who pierced his side said, surely this man was the son of God. Right? They knew it. And they should know it by our lives. We got nothing to earn for ourselves. And our motors can be pure. They can be selfless. With God's help working in us. With that seed growing to new life in us. It can be that way. We can lay down our lives without seeking our own gain. And then finally, it needs to be harmless. 1 Peter 3, 8 and 9, it says, Finally, all of you should be of one mind. Sympathize with one another. Love each other as brothers and sisters. Be tender-hearted, and keep a humble attitude. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. And that's what God called you to do, and he will grant you his blessing. He also says in 16, But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then, if people speak against you, they'll be ashamed when they see what a good life you live, because you belong to Christ. Our lives, and the way that we live, if we live in a harmless way, if we live in a way that's not trying to fight back, you know, again, it comes back to that selflessness. If we're trying to get ours, we're going to turn to violence and all kinds of other stuff to try and protect our image and protect what we have, to fight for our own rights here on this earth. Jesus calls us to lay down our rights because he's, he's fought for all of them for us and it's secured for eternity. This life is not all there is. This is temporary. We're temporary residents here. This is not our home. This is not the long term. The greatest priority is for us to be a reflection of Jesus' character here on this earth. And that means live in such a way that will silence those who accuse us. They will see us and say, I don't know why they were so loving, so caring, so gentle, so respectful. I don't get it. We were awful to them. There's no better way to silence the critics, right? This is the only fitting way to respond to what Jesus has done for us. This is not the easy way. This is the gospel way. It's the way of peace and of grace and of mercy. It's the way that reflects the character and goodness of our God. Returning evil with a blessing instead of evil. So the problem when we encounter when we think through all this stuff and try to think about caring in this life is we, we struggle with our identity, right? Who am I? And the three things that we identify ourselves by are what we do, what people say about us, and what we have, right? We feel pretty good about ourselves when we're doing a good job, when we're feeling successful, feeling like we're winning at life, feel like we've accomplished something, or maybe when we're done with this life uh, and looking back we look at the trophies on the wall and say look look at all the stuff that i did or books that i wrote or whatever you know like we we have this stuff to point to and say i did something i made a difference in this world or what people say about us when people talk kindly of us and praise us and say man you're doing a great job we feel pretty good about ourselves and when we have some stuff we got great family great job great home great car whatever you know we'll, we'll look at that stuff and feel pretty good about ourselves Problem is, that's a roller coaster, right? Because that changes from day to day. One day, people will praise you. One, one day, people will reject you. One day, you'll feel like you're doing a great job. One day, you'll totally bomb and just mess it all up, right? And we'll just ride this roller coaster. Uh, a guy that I look up to a lot, is his name's Henry Nouwen, and he passed away in 1996. Um, Nouwen was a priest. Uh, he's from the Netherlands, and uh, if you ever get a chance to find one of his videos and watch him. He's really entertaining to watch because he's very animated when he speaks. Um, This guy had it all going for him. He was this up-and-coming public speaker. He actually trained at Menninger's for two years uh, here in Topeka, and uh, and one of his degrees that he he earned here. And uh, he was at Harvard, and he was this up-and-coming speaker. He had the prime job for what he was doing. And people were asking him to come all over the world to speak and do all this stuff, and he had everything, right? He was the next big thing. And then now and gave it all up. And he went to this place called Daybreak in Ontario. Uh, dude had written like 30 something books, and he goes to this place uh, basically where the job is if you've heard of Camp Barnabas, it's similar to that, where he would care for uh, the disabled, and he would be like the chaplain priest for this community. And he was assigned to Adam. Every day he would wake up, and he would bathe him, he'd dress him, he'd feed him his breakfast, and spend time with Adam. Adam couldn't speak. Adam didn't know that he had written any books. Adam didn't care. And people who lived around Nouwen described his first little season there as like him being this frantic guy who just wanted to do more stuff and get more stuff done. He's like, why do I have to sit here all morning and just wait on Adam? You know, like, I don't, this is taking forever. I don't understand. Like, it didn't make any sense to him. And the people who had been there in the community for a while said, look, it's about getting to know Adam and loving him. And that's it. It's not about getting stuff done. And so now I had this kind of revelation in his time there that those three temptations, those for our identity, what we do, what we have, and what people say about us are the same temptations that Jesus faced in Matthew 4. To do something spectacular, to prove who he was, To do something to test, to see what others would say about who he was. And to do something in order that he would receive all the kingdoms of the world. Satan said, bow at my feet and I'll give you everything. It's the same temptations that we face. And we can't define our identity by those things. Our identity must be defined by what the Lord says of us. And just like he told Jesus in Matthew 3.17, you are my beloved child, And I am pleased with you. And remember, if we are in Christ, the same thing the Father says about Jesus, he says about us. So when he looks at you, if you are in Christ, this is how he sees you. You are his beloved child. Your identity is not in what you do. It's not in what people say about you. And it's not what you have. It's about what God says about you. And he loves you. And he gave up everything for you. So that you could be his for eternity. So you could be adopted as his son or his daughter. There's rest in that that we can't find in this world. There's peace in this that we can't find in this world. And there's security in this that we can't find in those things. It's not a roller coaster anymore. Because of this, we can operate out of this identity. Rather than trying to do stuff to earn stuff for ourselves, we can just simply be the children of God here in this world, representing God and loving like God has loved us first. Passing that along, not trying to get anything for ourselves because it's been done, because we are His beloved children. And it's set, it's finished. We can truly care selflessly blamelessly and harmlessly, giving ourselves away for the sake of the kingdom because of the great love that's been poured out on us. Now, if you're hearing this stuff and maybe you've never put your trust in Jesus, or maybe you've been a believer for a long time and you just want to spend some time today and say, Lord, help me to find my identity in these things, in who you say I am and not what this world says I am. But if you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, I'd encourage you, today is the day. Don't wait another day. Because what he says about Jesus can be said of you. If you are in Christ, that is the truth for you. Don't let another day go by when you're riding the roller coaster for your identity, trying to define your life by what you do, what people say about you, or what you have. You don't need to live like that. And God is calling you to himself today. Now, I liken the picture of faith to this wheelbarrow. There's a guy named Charles Blondine, and he, um, he was a tightrope walker, right? He'd walk across Niagara Falls with this wheelbarrow and walk back, and everybody's like, dude, you are amazing. You are the best tightrope walker ever, right? And he put a bag of potatoes in there, walked across, came back. Everybody's like, you're incredible. He's like, all right, who believes I could put a person in here and walk across and come back? And everyone's like, yes, you could do it. He's like, all right, volunteers. That's faith. Get in the wheelbarrow today. Trust your life into Jesus' care completely. Jesus, take all of me. I am yours. Take my sin, take my life, take every decision from here on out. I'm yours. I trust you, Jesus, with all that I am. It's not just fire insurance, church, right? It's take me, Jesus. I'm yours. All right, let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for the love that we have because of what Jesus has done for us, for the care that you showed for us in sending Jesus to be our substitute, to take our sin, to be our righteousness, to be our life. Lord, thank you for calling us your beloved sons and daughters through Jesus. Thank you for adopting us as your own. Lord, help us to operate out of that identity, not trying to find our identity in anything else, in what we do and what people say about us and what we have, but help us to find it in you alone, Lord. And what you say about us through Christ. Help us to rest in that and help us to love like you've loved us first. Lord, I pray for those who may not have believed yet, Lord. I pray that they would trust you completely today to save them to the uttermost. Lord, you've done it all for us. We thank you that it is finished. There's nothing we can add to your salvation. You've done it all for us, Lord. It's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray together. Amen.